on this first Sunday of Advent, we focus on the theme of hope and the incarnate hope that is shown to us in Jesus and in his body, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We glimpse the very character of God and the kind of hope that God brings to us. This is no superficial, sentimental sort of optimism. This is something of a different character altogether. And to help anchor our reflections today, we're going to be reading two excerpts, one from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, and that's going to be the majority of our reading. And if you wanted to put a thumb in Mark, chapter 13, verse 33, we're going to hear Jesus' exclamation point. From the prophet Isaiah, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your adversaries and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We will all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. In the words of Jesus from Mark's gospel, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, here at the beginning of Advent, we are now turning our hearts to the practices of waiting and anticipation. And I think how we receive that depends very much on what it is you're waiting for. Uh, young people of all ages might be awaiting gifts. And I've seen children just circle the Christmas tree like buzzards, adorable buzzards, but buzzards nonetheless, trying to get a box and maybe even shake it and see if that might offer a clue about what's inside. Or maybe you're waiting now for uh, special out-of-town guests to arrive. So you better get busy, you know, preparing the extra linen, stocking up on the meals, and getting ready and anticipating all of that. Lynn Odom texted me yesterday to say that the baby that they have been waiting for has been born, Leah Odom. Six pounds, two ounces is now a reality here in the world. Welcome to the world and to our hearts, baby. Leah, 
Shamika, I look back there today and realize it was just about this time last year that we were welcoming your Aiden to the world and to our hearts as well. And there's one commentator, a woman, who actually noted that that last hope, maybe waiting for a child to arrive, is a bit closer to where Isaiah also takes us today. Depending on where you are in that labor and delivery suite, Isaiah is waiting. He's even begging for God to rip open the heavens, set fires, instigate earthquakes, and show up already. Whatever it takes, God, come and judge the whole earth. And so this is more than a superficial sort of waiting. Isaiah is singing about something altogether different. On this first Sunday of Advent, with this emphasis on hope, we do this every year. In hope, we find that Isaiah is singing about something that's not a cozy or festive or cheery, fireside sort of experience on our way to Christmas. This is not a benign or a tame sentiment. Instead, we remember that what we are waiting for is judgment. Judgment. Our hope begins with a baby in a manger, but it finds its completion in a sovereign who will judge the whole earth, putting every broken thing back together and setting things right. And so we sing two of our favorite Advent hymns today, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and O Come, O Come Emmanuel. And, and this is what those hymns, those carols are also wishing for. They are super singable, and that's why we sing them. But hear the words one more time, Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. Sounds like a call for SEAL Team 6. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Those melodies are so inviting, we forget that we're declaring revolutionary words. And today, those very sweet songs of expectation and longing, they become something more when we recall what it is God is about in this world. They become more sinewy and muscular and tense, drenched with sweat and with blood. And in naming the sort of deliverance that we need, we are at the same time remembering all that remains so very wrong with this world. We remember everything, as Isaiah says, that's wrong with our enemies. And when we're honest, we remember all of the things that have gone sideways for us. In our lives, by us. So be careful what you wish for if you wish for God to show up. Because it's falling out of fashion in some ways to think of God as possessing anger or expressing anger. And the days are very long gone when sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God would draw a crowd. But we cannot read Scripture honestly and avoid any conclusion other than that some things make God angry. And our sin makes God angry. 
God hates the way sin perverts, contorts, and twists our souls and our loyalties. It distorts our vision of the world and our neighbor. And ultimately, it rejects God's sovereignty and God's love. But sometimes that's where all the claims I've ever heard about God's anger end. And as Paul Harvey said, there's the rest of the story. Yes, in the midst of God's anger, we also find God ascending a cross. And there in that place of exaltation, lifted up, God exchanges that wrath for righteousness. And that's the cost of salvation, the dignity and the life of the God of the universe poured out in flesh and blood and history. And there's more. God is also angry about the sin that you have endured. This world is broken by sin. And little by little, like rogue cells in a body, the cancer invades and metastasizes and spreads out in the world and affects other people here in this society who never earn the suffering that they endure. In this world, there are people and there are systems and there are institutions that bring injustice, that bring oppression, that bring dehumanization. And this world, broken by its sin, manifests in countless ways. The wickedness that we can do to each other, sexual abuse and physical violence and emotional and psychological manipulation, all the rest. They leave a trail of wounded people as far as the eye can see, and God is angry about that too. So if you hear me say God is angry with you, well, hear the first part I talked about, but also hear that God is angry with you, as in alongside you. And the anger of God that is on display in Isaiah's vision here, tearing the heavens, quaking the earth. We have a picture of a God who is eager, has a sense of urgency of coming alongside those who are also angry about what is wrong with the world and with themselves. A God who is eager to come alongside and will make things new. And so when you call upon God to come here and set everything right, when you know that you're also maybe part of the problem, it seems a little foolish, unless you're Jesus. And I think that's how we establish a little bit of a toehold in this hope that's cultivated in Jesus' arrival that we anticipate in Advent. Jesus is not part of the problem. And Jesus is willing to put his life and his body on the line because he knows that God is offering something new, that God is offering something healing, that God is offering something more. So that by the time the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman church, at the beginning of chapter 5, he simply writes this, we have been justified through faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Isaiah has a similar conviction. 
the conclusion of our reading today, he prays, do not be angry beyond measure, God. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your people. Our reading today moves from that place of impersonality to a deeply personal appeal. In the first half of what I've read, there are these declarations to God as if God is far away. In about verse 5, it switches to a we. And it's at that point, instead of talking to God about God and what we think God should be doing, there's a more honest assessment of what we need. How can we be saved? And as we anticipate Christmas, which as Gail reminded us in her prayer this morning, takes us from that humble cradle all the way to the cross of Good Friday, the tomb of Easter Sunday and beyond, within that long story of God's life with us, we have a safe place to give an honest reckoning of our sins and our failures and our hurts and our pains, our resentments and our regrets, we can reach out to God because Jesus Christ has carried that guilt and has won the victory over sin and shame and death and punishment. And I think it's an important word for us as we occupy this world in which we now live, where, where social media, for instance, gives us a way to present ourselves in the most flattering of lights. As one person has written, our lives, in view of Instagram or Facebook or whatever your preferred medium, become more marketable than honest. But I know looking out here, there's a broken heart in every pew. Sometimes there are public pains. More often, there are private pains beyond counting. And there seems to be no place to be honest about that. The real challenges that are our constant companions. So don't give me any of that language about hope unless it really means something. In the same way, don't ask somebody, how are you, unless you're prepared to go past that long sigh. And you know the sigh. How are you doing? <gasps> Sit a spell. Listen. Don't interrupt. Because once you make that space, you know you've opened up the reservoir that someone has been carrying around. How much time do you have? As much as it takes. Life can be discouraging can be disappointing. It can be dangerous. For all of us, ultimately, life is deadly. And C.S. Lewis once wrote, I don't think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about God. The conclusion I dread is not that so there's no God after all, but instead, so this is what God is really like? Deceive yourselves no longer. This call to God to come and deliver us is answered in a way that we don't completely understand. 
But we must accept that it's not about God's extraction of us from our pains and our lives in this world. Instead, it is an expression of complete, gracious, divine empathy. Not extraction, but empathy coming alongside all of us, bearing our burdens with us. In the same way that Paul called upon believers to laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. That is where the God of the universe chooses to be. Laughing and weeping with you, with y'all, with us, with this world. And so that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonian church, told them, you do not grieve as the rest of humankind who have no hope. We got to track back through Paul's double negative. He's good for those. And we realize what he's saying is this, you grieve as those with hope. You grieve as those with hope. And sometimes we feel like we can't allow both to occupy our lives at the same time, that we lament and we hope. Many of us have hoped, but without any lament. And we gloss over the pains that we carry around. We say, ah, oh, it'll all just sort of work out in the end. Others, of course, lament without any hope, and they end up in the pit of despair. And there's a final group that does neither. They have no hope, nor do they lament, and they face the world simply with a detached sort of numbness to it all. The lamenting with hope allows us to be honest with God about the fallenness of this world and the brokenness of our lives because it is in the presence only of a compassionate God that we can find alleviation for our suffering. Will you dare to exhibit the sort of trust in a God like that with a life like yours? Well, it begins as the prophet begins today, I think, by shaking our fists at the way things are and beginning to perceive how God is already bearing the burdens and the pains and the infirmities with us and around us. Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, hope is not a way of talking about wish fulfillment. It is not optimism. Optimism is about choosing to look at your circumstance and simply say, it will work out for the best. Or at least trying to find out how it might work out for this. But biblical hope is not based on circumstances. There are many examples of very hopeful people in the Bible who recognize there is no evidence that things will get better. And they choose hope anyway. One of my friends has endured for the past year and a half some of the most soul-crushing losses I could imagine in sequence in life. And I remember on social media, this is, a, uh, this is a redeeming part. She posted a meme one day and it simply said this, you can be sad and thankful, just like you can be full and still eat pie in time for Thanksgiving. Both things can be true. You can be hurting and you can choose hope. Hope is a choice. It's not simply an inspired sentiment. And so by the time the earliest followers of Jesus were forming into a church 
and we receive the writings of the New Testament, those early followers cultivated a habit of hope because they believed that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection was God's very surprising response to our slavery, to the way of this world, to its sin and death. And the empty tomb, in many ways, opened up a door to hope. And so, hope is the word they use that describes the anticipation of the door that God opens and holds open. Hope. So when Peter wrote to believers in his first letter, he said, Christians are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time seems to be what what Isaiah is also gesturing toward. There's a lot of mystery about when, how that last time will come when it will come i dare not plunge into those depths today but what i want us to remember on this first sunday of advent is that in the first coming of god in christ our savior because of what we have learned and grown in through him we need not fear god's arrival in our lives and to wish for god's Return ultimately is a very beautiful and brave statement of trust in all that Christ has done and all that Christ is doing and all that Christ will do in the lives of those who often hide themselves from love. So how much you live like that today? For about 15 seconds, for the introverts, I'm going to be very quiet so you can just sort of call forth a thought I want you, as best as you're able, to identify the top pain or couple of pains that you're carrying around, even carried with you today. It may be physical, maybe emotional, it may be spiritual, it may be relational, it may be something that affects your entire neighborhood. But I want you to hold that pain here in the forefront of your brain long enough to remember a simple story a story that talks about how one step of faith can demonstrate all the hope in the world as you hold on tightly to that pain remember the story that henry nowen tells in his book sabbatical journeys when he made friends with the trapeze artist the flying rudellas In getting to know them, he learned one important thought, and it was this, that there's a special relationship between what's called the flyer, the person who flips around, and the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one who lets go, and the catcher is the one who catches. And so as the flyer starts swinging higher and higher above the crowd on the trapeze, there comes a moment when that flyer must let go and arc up into the air. And the flyer's job in that moment is to remain as still as possible and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to 
pluck the flyer out of the air. So as Rudell is told now, and the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. That is hope. As Mary Martha leads us now, it's an opportunity for us to respond, to continue the prayer that was begun at the conclusion of this sermon and with open hands and open hearts release what it is you need to release to God and allow God to hold on to you. If you've never taken that first step of trust to begin following Jesus, to receive him and accept that he has done all that is required for you to be united with God now and forever, then don't delay. Perhaps you need to return to a promise she made a long time ago. Maybe there's another calling. Take the time as Mary Martha leads us as we share our offerings and express our generosity. And if you feel so led at the conclusion of the service today to declare a special decision in your life to become a Christian or to join this church or another special calling, I'll gladly receive you as we sing that concluding hymn, present you, and together we will grow toward greater and greater spiritual maturity, faithfulness, and fruitfulness.